Well, we have a treat tonight. Uh, Brad is out of town, so it's my privilege to be able to uh, lead the Q&A tonight. We have Lance Quinn with us. You guys will get to know him better if you don't already. Uh, I know him uh, just a little bit through different friends. I looked on Facebook, and I think you're friends with all my friends. <laughs> and uh, you know all of my bosses, uh, Dr. Street, Dr. Scott. And um, so, yeah, it's just been a real treat. I've heard just about you through them a lot of times, uh, through our prayer for you, and just over the, over the last year or so, and even beyond that. And so we're re- really looking forward to tonight, just getting to know more about you, but also to really what the Lord's been teaching you uh, through this last year uh, plus, as you guys have gone through all that the Lord's brought into your life. So let me, without further ado, read uh, just your int- quick introduction and bio. So Lance... Quinn grew up in Arkansas, came to faith in Jesus Christ as a freshman at Arkansas State University. He graduated in 1982 with a degree in communications, and it was during that summer of that year where Lance came to the settled decision that the Lord was leading him to go to seminary in order to be trained for pastoral ministry. He attended Talbot Theological Seminary from 1983 to 86, and then received his Master of Divinity and Master of Theology, Doctorate of Ministry, so you're... Uh, Love Punishment, Uh, all those degrees from the Master's Seminary. Lance uh, has been in pastoral ministry for 30 years, 20 of those years as a senior pastor. After his first 10 years of pastoral ministry in California, he became the senior pastor of the Bible Church of Little Rock, Arkansas, where he served for 15 years. His hobbies include playing golf, relaxing, uh, watching sports on television, His ultimate pastime, however, is reading books that have to do with understanding the Bible and Christianity. Beth, Lance's wife, was born and raised in Iowa. She graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago in 1984, and she was continuing her education at Biola University when she first met Lance when he was a student at Talbot Seminary. They were married in October of 1986, and the Quins currently reside in Thousand Oaks, where Lance serves as a senior pastor of Thousand Oaks Bible Church, and Beth is where Beth is a pianist and helps lead women's ministries. They've been blessed with eight children and four grandchildren. So your uh, your kids have a ways to, to catch up, I guess, huh? Yes, yes. <laughs> so, all right. It's great to be here. Good to see all of you men here. I know several of you, and I'm glad you came anyway. <laughs> So, all right, well, well, tell us how, just give us a brief summary. We, we read a little bit there about how the Lord saved you, but tell us, you know, how that came about. Well, that's a great question. Um, don't want to make it long, but uh, I grew up uh, in a divorced situation of a home. My parents were divorced when I was about four years old, and we were living in uh, Altadena, California at the time. And my mother took myself and my sister back to her home state of Arkansas. Uh, She did not have a marketable skill and no job and needed a place to stay. And so we drove across the country in a pink Studebaker Lark. And uh, I see some of you old men nodding right now. And we... uh, Landed there, and I went to school there in northeast Arkansas. And my mom out here had become a Jehovah's Witness. And uh, 
So through those early years, had some influence by that. And it wasn't until my freshman year in college that someone had given me a Bible. Uh, it was a brand new translation called the NIV. And it sat on my shelf in the dorm room for a little while. But I started to ask questions, sort of those uh, probing questions. Who am I? What is life all about? Is this all there is to life? What happens when I die? Some of those kinds of questions. And in the providence of God, I saw that Bible on my shelf and uh, kicked off the dust and started reading the Gospels. And within about, oh, three to six months, just through reading the Gospels of the New Testament, I came to faith in Christ. And I had already started that uh, major communications, uh, radio and television. And so I was in the radio television building uh, taking some of my classes, and there were uh, a couple of guys, twin brothers, who were Roman Catholic fellows from the state of New York who had come out wannabes as directors in Hollywood in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, and they were disillusioned by the Hollywood scene, and someone from Grace Community Church witnessed to them, and they both came to Christ. And they came to Arkansas State University, one of them to do a master's degree in film because they had said to each other, now that we're Christians, let's make films for Christ. And so they, they came for more training, and I met them in the radio and television and film building, and they handed me, you guys may remember this, a thing called cassette tapes, you know, with a little two holes in the middle. And they gave me a cassette tape because the man who had witnessed to them out here where they came to Christ was a member of Grace Community Church. And he gave them a lot of tapes of a pastor named John MacArthur. And so these twin brothers started listening to these tapes. And when they went to Arkansas to further their education, uh, they started to be on the tape lending library. Some of you guys will remember that. And uh, they became regular tapeworms of John's preaching. And so they handed me a tape of one of John's messages out of Matthew 7, Lord, Lord. And it was the first time I'd ever heard expository preaching. And I was very, very new in Christ, but I listened to that tape and couldn't get enough. And so I became a tapeworm as well. And at that time, because there was uh, only snail mail, uh, you could order 12 tapes of anything from the catalog that you wanted, and then you'd send in your order, the 12 tapes would come in the mail, and then while you were listening to those, those tapes, you could order some more, so that by the time you were finished with those 12, uh, a new batch would arrive. And so through my uh, the last three years of my college experience, I, I listened to 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of cassette tapes. And um, I was just beginning to be not only transformed spiritually, but also very much taught about the church and about the Lord and about Christianity. And I really realized at that time that I thought maybe full-time ministry was something that the Lord had for me. So when I graduated, I went for one year to a seminary in Memphis, Tennessee, but I realized, you know, maybe I should try to see what Grace Church was all about. I'd listened to John's exposition on the book of Ephesians, and he'd made so many personal references about Grace Church in, in that series. So I thought, I wonder what it would be like to, to be out at Grace Church. And so I transferred to Talbot Seminary at that time, 1983, and I showed up immediately the very first Sunday here at Grace. And so I became a member here at Grace in June of 1983. And uh, I was working down at the Biola campus, and uh, that afforded me some tuition discount uh, for my classes. And as a young single guy, I needed all the financial help I could get. But every Sunday, I was working security down there, so I worked four 10-hour shifts uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And so on those early Sunday mornings, I'd worked four 10-hour shifts, and that one Sunday morning each week that I was very, very tired, but I was highly motivated to come here because in the morning, John was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and in the evening, the book of Romans. And so I would get off work at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I would drive from La Mirada uh, up to Grace Church, and I would listen to John preach through the Gospel of Matthew, and then uh, I would go down here to the fast food restaurant, which used to be a, a Wendy's on, on the corner of Woodman and Roscoe. Now I think it's a Carl's Jr., isn't it, or was at one time, and there's uh, nothing now. Wow, how times change. And then I'd just grab a bite to eat, and then uh, the old, uh, well, the building there where uh, the um, cafeteria is now used to be called a fireside room, if you guys remember that. And uh, they had some couches there, and so that was my nap time. So uh, I would go in there and, and take a nap in the afternoon, and then we'd get up and be ready for the 6 o'clock service. I'd go in the restroom and water my face and get ready listen uh, to the book of Romans and what an experience that was. And then I would hot-foot it back down to La Mirada to, to go to work at 10 o'clock at night. And then uh, got off at 8 o'clock the next morning. And uh, it, was a, it was a full, full time of work and a great time at being at Grace Church. Started teaching FOF classes. Um, Jim George was a pastor here. And he put me to work teaching FOF classes and all kinds of different things. And uh, Jim was the one who also introduced me to my wife because she was his secretary. And uh, so he ended up marrying us right there in the chapel. And so we, uh, we counted my wife and I, Grace Church, as our home. And uh, I came on staff here at Grace and uh, served here for 10 years from 1986 to 1996 and then in 1996, I went to be the senior pastor of the Bible Church of Little Rock that had been pastored right before me by Steve Lawson. So he was there for 14, and uh, 
I was there for 15, so I always hold that over his head. So was there for 15 years, and then in 2011, uh, John asked me to come back here and uh, start the ministry called Grace Advance. And so from uh, 2011, 12, 13, and 14, we did that, and then I got the bug to uh, plant a local church in Thousand Oaks. And so we started Thousand Oaks Bible Church, and then recently, a couple of years ago, another church in the area, Bethany Church, asked us if we would merge with them. They'd gone through some challenges, and so we merged with, with Bethany Church, and uh, that's the name of the church since they were the older and more established congregation. And then just this past December, just a little over a month ago, another church merged with us. So um, I guess we're into mergers and acquisitions. So that's a little bit of a background there. Thank you very much. It's always amazing really just to hear people's salvation testimonies. Uh, oftentimes it's in the 80s. It has something to do with the tapes. Yes. So um, it's very neat. Tell us about your family, just how many years you've been married, number of children. Uh, this coming October, my wife and I will have been married uh, 33 years, and uh, we have eight children. Um, the oldest is 31, who still lives in Little Rock, uh, and then 31, boy, it's going to tax me here, 31, 30, um, 28, 26, 24. 22, 21, and almost 20, the caboose. And um, five of them are currently married and have children. And now that was a little bit dated. We now have uh, seven grandkids. And um, it's perfect for us to be in the Caneo Valley because Caneo is Spanish for rabbit. So we just keep multiplying out there. And uh, we have... Uh, Two that uh, one is engaged, and uh, I think the other might uh, possibly be engaged this year as well. So seven of the eight might uh, very well be married by the time 2019 uh, is up. And uh, my wife and I, is, he read, uh, she's from Iowa, and we met there. She was a senior at Biola, and I was at Talbot. And uh, she has been uh, very precious to me, and uh, as some of you may know, um, in December, December 2nd of 2017, uh, Beth was not feeling well that morning. She's been incredibly healthy all our married life and all her entire life. I was actually in Baltimore, Maryland. One of our Master Seminary graduates, George Lawson, some of you know George, uh, he'd asked me to come and do a conference for him and preach for him on Sunday of that particular weekend. And so I was there teaching. And I got a call from uh, two of our daughters, the two youngest. And they just said, Dad, something's wrong with Mom. It was a Saturday, and she'd gotten ready for the day. And she was kind of asking the same question several times. And they knew something's not quite right. You know, we knew it was December. So, you know, is it, is she got the flu? Is she, you know, a little disoriented? What's, what's going on? And so they called me and I said, well, let's, you know, take her to the emergency room because that's just not like her. And so they took her to the emergency room, which thank the Lord's only about 
two minutes from our house, Los Robles Hospital in Thousand Oaks. And so they did some uh, scans, and she called me about 7 o'clock my time on the East Coast. I was in Baltimore, Maryland. And she said, the doctor has just informed me that I have a, uh, a very large mass that he believes to be cancerous in my lung, and it has apparently already traveled to my adrenal gland and my brain. So that's one of those shocking calls to get. And so I said, I'm, I'm coming home immediately. So George Lawson uh, picked me up from the hotel and uh, rushed me uh, to the airport, and I took an overnight flight. And one of my sons uh, picked me up from LAX and took me to the hospital bed where she lay, and we embraced and kissed one another for a long time. And she is still alive. Uh, she was very, very sick. And the reason why she was a bit disoriented was that she had six brain tumors. One of those was lodged in the visual cortex area, and she'd had some some vision issues, but we actually thought that that was because she'd recently uh, been fitted for trifocals. And the doctor had said, you're probably going to have some, some headaches and maybe some blurred vision, and, and that's what she had, but we attributed it to something else. And so we started that journey. And praise the Lord through the providence of God and through how he's been using treatments for her. Um, she is doing about as well as she could possibly be doing given the diagnosis of adenocarcinoma of the lung, which is non-small cell, non-smoker lung cancer. We have no idea how that cancer got into her body. She's never smoked in her life. She's not a smoker, and she was incredibly healthy and just in the providence of God, she has cancer. And so she was a candidate for some new therapy you might see on television. You might see commercials called Keytruda. And Keytruda is an immunotherapy um, drug that allows your own immune system to begin to fight against the cancer. And in 50% of the cases for those who are candidates for Keytruda, they've seen some amazing success and prolonged life. Uh, there's no cure for the kind of cancer that she has, at least what we know of. So she was a candidate for Keytruda, and it was worth the risk. And so she was on that from two days after Christmas of 2017 and for the next nine weeks. Also on December 14th, because of the tumors in her brain, again, right next to Los Robles Hospital is the Gamma Knife uh, Radiation Surgery Center, which, thank the Lord, they don't do incisions. They, they inject radiation rays right through the skull, and she had a procedure that dealt with those six tumors, and they radiated just the cancer cells themselves and uh, they were eliminated from her brain. And 
On December 27th, she began the Keytruda, and for nine weeks, the process was on. Unfortunately, she was not in that 50 percentile of effectiveness. And so nine weeks went by with, other than the gamma knife radiation, no real treatment. So the cancer itself had spread, therefore, to the liver, uh, to the bone, and seven more tumors back to the brain. It's a very, very fast-growing cancer. And so she had a second gamma knife procedure to deal with those seven new tumors. And right before that gamma knife surgery, uh, she was feeling very, very poorly. And we didn't know why, and we couldn't go through with the procedure right at that moment because she was just too sick. And so they rushed her uh, to the hospital and found out that the cancer had begun um, initiating blood clots in her legs. And so the cancer caused those blood clots to go to her lungs, and she had multiple blood clots in both of her lungs. Of course, you may know that these pulmonary emboli um, if any of those were to burst, you would, you would die immediately. And so, praise the Lord, we got her on some blood thinner and none of those clots burst. She was able to go through the gamma knife procedure and, and then she started immediately on some very, very heavy chemotherapy, which from mid-February to almost mid-February, just a couple of weeks from now, She's been on one year of continuous chemo. And, uh, of course, it has its side effects, but her body has responded over this year remarkably well to the chemo. If you saw my wife, you would say, what a pretty lady. She looks totally healthy, and she does. But, uh, of course, you know, the cancer is trying to do its worst in her. And we just received word this week uh, about the fact that after many scans over that year's worth of time, uh, she had had good scans with no detectable cancer in the liver and the adrenal gland and other places other than the lung. And this week we got new scans, or actually a couple of weeks ago, but we got the scans read and, and consulted with us that the tumors, a couple of spots have returned to the brain. And her liver also has a large mass, a lesion. So she is probably going to have a procedure if insurance accepts and all of that. Um, probably next week, if not next week, the following week to cauterize an ablation to cauterize the lesion in her liver. And then probably at some point down the road, uh, a third gamma knife surgery and probably even some stronger um, chemotherapy just to, to keep her alive, just to lengthen her life. So, brothers, could I ask you to pray for her? I, I, I know you will, and so many from Grace Church have expressed their heart of love and their prayers to us, and I believe those prayers, the prayers of righteous men and women are effective and uh, Beth and I attribute how well she has been doing with a very insidious form of cancer to the prayers of God's people all over the world. 
Oh, well, <clears throat> thank you for sharing that. Our, our hearts certainly are heavy, you know, with you hearing all of that and just very, very thankful for you being with us mm. uh, to be able to share it. It really for us just to learn what God has taught you and grown you. We know in, in, in trials like this that God just, uh, you know, continues to grow us, expand our, our knowledge of him, push us to, to ask questions that we wouldn't have normally asked. And so we really want to just continue to learn from you. What was, what was your, just going mm. back, you know, to when you first found out, what was your initial just response to that? We know that it's easy to kind of put on a face, yeah. Uh, hide what we're truly feeling. How, how did you really respond in that moment? You know, the first thing that I thought was, I don't know the future, and I don't know her prognosis other than the fact that I knew the doctors were saying it was very bleak because by the time the cancer was discovered, you know, you have stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, and her particular diagnosis was stage 4B. So that's the uh, sort of the last kind of uh, diagnosis that would be very, very bleak to hear. And yet the first thing that I, I thought was, praise you, Lord, because you, you've given us almost 32 years of marriage together. That's a gift, right? That's a gift. We're not, we're not promised anything. We're not promised a long life. We're not promised prosperity. We are promised salvation and heaven. And she's a very, very godly lady. In fact, just as I was going out the door to come here, she said, I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for this time and praying for you. And so I thanked the Lord, but then of course, I immediately thought of my eight children and what, what would they do without their, their mom? And the hardest thing I did, the very hardest thing, fellas, was as George Lawson was driving me for a couple of hours to Dulles Airport, was for me to make a call to all the kids and just explain to them. And, of course, they've always known their mother as a completely healthy person. She's been so strong and she just was hardly ever sick of anything. Uh, never down, not a nap taker, just go, go, do, do. And to hear of this very, very bleak diagnosis and, and to try to explain to them uh, what kind of cancer and, and what the mortality rate of that kind of cancer, the, the kind of the median mortality rate for that cancer is three to eight months. And so for them to hear that and then to hear those shrieks and cries on the phone as we're driving to the airport in terms of their responses is just unimaginable. And so dad's heart is, is, very, very low and heavy. And yet, all of my children profess faith in Christ and uh, grew up both here and in Little Rock and all are church-going, Christ-professing believers. And so they understood that this is, this is not all there is. There's a grand continuity 
between this life and the life to come. And that's our hope, right? That's the hope of everyone who knows Christ. And so the first thing, Daniel, that just came into my mind was thank you. And then, of course, you're flooded with questions. Um, how long will she live? Uh, what kind of what kind of treatment? Um, will there be side effects? You know, just all those general questions as they come. And of course, when you're on a overnight flight for five hours or so, and the the flight was not filled at all, um, I sat in the very back row by design. And uh, John MacArthur called me on the phone because he heard from one of our other brothers, Jerry Ragg, used to pastor here. And so Jerry had called me and John called me and, and Phil Johnson and others who were hearing of the word. And, and so I took those calls before the plane took off. And, and then, of course, you've got to turn off your phone. So uh, I didn't uh, do anything but sat in my chair all alone with all of the lights out on an overnight flight and just cried my eyes out. Because you hear that kind of news and you say to yourself, Lord, what, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with us? What do you want to do with me? What do you want to do with our, our children? You know, we're, we're just now enjoying this wonderful fruit of these grandchildren. Our oldest, oldest grandchildren is about four. And so if you have, you know, six or seven grandkids, you know that they're all wonderful little toddlers that are running around your house and uh, you don't need television or film or anything. They're your form of entertainment. And so you just start running pictures through your mind like, well, what if, what if she's not here for, for these grandkids? She enjoys them so much. Just all those regular questions that we all think about and that you would inevitably ask. But then, of course, because of your commitment to Christ and your knowledge of the Word of God, you, you answer all of those self-questions by what Scripture says. God is in charge. God is in control. God is sovereign. God is a God of providence. He's a God of love. He can be trusted. God gives us hope. God gives us Christ who comes to us in comfort. And all of those things, now because of the fact that you've banked all of these passages in your mind for all of those years, and now you can draw on the bank of faith. You can draw out all of these, these hard questions. And so it doesn't mean you don't cry. It doesn't mean you don't have heartache. It doesn't mean you, you think about not having a future with your wife, growing old together. You know, we all think that, right? You, if you're married, you, you know, boy, I wonder what my 50th anniversary of my, my wedding is going to be like and our kids and our grandkids and, you know, all the pictures. And, well, you ask inevitably then, well, will that happen? Or now it appears that maybe it won't. And, Lord, what do you want from me? I was asking honest questions. What if I become a, a widower? That's a hard question, isn't it? Some of you have already gone through that. Some of you are going through that now, and some of you will. And so these honest questions are just questions that are not 
They're not wrong to ask, but the Word of God has the answers. And maybe those are some of the things that are questions that these brothers have, have asked. Sure, yeah. One of the ones I was going to ask that I think you answered was just how you deal with the overwhelming emotions of it. And, I, and you answered it just in thinking through God's promises. You know, God has, has not promised us many things. And that was something I even worked through here recently. It was a very different circumstance, but, you know, just with job. You know, what's the Lord promised? Has he promised uh, this, this? Has he promised a home? Has he promised, you know, all these different things? And the answer really is nobody's promised to provide. You know, and so you, you, you really draw from the faith, you know, that you've grown and to know the Lord, to know his faithfulness, yes. to know what he's, he's done. So, yeah, just in responding to those overwhelming emotions, you, know, you really draw from the truth that yes. you know about God, that you know about his word. So that's, that's really helpful. Thank you very much. Well, I think, of, I think of a passage that might be familiar to you, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. I was reading that today. No testing or temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able, but with the testing, you may be able to endure it so that you can come out of a sinful response so that you may be able to endure it. The text says so that you may be able to escape. And I interpret that phrase because it says, so that you may be able to endure it. The escape is an escape out of a sinful response. In other words, God doesn't put you in the vice grip of testing so as to make you sin, right? We know that James 1 says that God tempts no man, nor is he himself tempted by anyone. Satan tempts us to sin. He wants to solicit us to do evil, but God tests us to prove our faith, uh, to see the testing. You know, that, that word testing is, is a marvelous word in the Greek text. It's the word dokimos. And dokimos was a word that was used in the blacksmith shop, uh, the artisan. And they would fire up the kill, and they would put those, those metals into the kill, and they would turn on the furnace to a furious, furious degree, and what would be burned away would be the dross, the impurities. And what would come forth would be gold or precious metals, whatever's placed in there. And that's the word dokimos. So dokimos is that God puts us in the, the fiery furnace of adversity, of testing. And what burns away from us is the dross of our sin, our impatience, our sinful questioning, our, our anger, uh, our volatility at our circumstances, um, whatever sins we may be prone to commit. And the dross is what God is burning away so that we come forth as those who've been tested by fire and found worthy, not in and of ourselves, but worthy by the power of Christ 
and through the fruit of that testing procedure. That's what dokimos means. So God tests you so that when you are seeing the test for what it is and you're responding well to it, then you don't have to say to God, my only alternative here is to sin because God's got me in this vice grip and I'm, I'm angry about it or I'm mad about it or I lack patience because of it. And therefore, I don't like this. I don't like the trial. I don't like what God is taking me through. It's unfair. It's not right. And that's all dross, isn't it? Those attitudes, it's all dross. And so the fire is turned up even hotter so that when I begin to see what God is doing in his providence, I can get out of the escape hatch of a sinful response into and enduring life of patience, joy, and my life is now more further conformed to the image of Christ. And I've seen that in my wife's life. I've seen that in my life. I've seen that in our children's lives and their spouses. I mean, it's, it's been remarkable how we've come together. My kids started shortly after best diagnosis to have an every other Thursday night time over at our house in Thousand Oaks where they would just come and they would make a meal and we'd have all the kids and the grandkids come around and every other Thursday night we have Grammy night. And it's just a wonderful thing to see my wife be so overjoyed at these children and these grandchildren who are spending as much time with their mom, their Grammy, as they possibly can, not knowing the future. And that's a lot better, my brothers, than being angry and being bitter. And we're all learning how not to sin against the Lord and how not to be angry through the fiery tests of life. And all of these passages that you're being taught on Wednesday night and all of your own personal Bible studies and all of your digging into the Word, there's going to be a time when you can bank on this too and give of the reserve of all these passages when the trials come. And some of you, undoubtedly all of you, are going through some trial of one sort or another. Yeah, certainly this is going to come out of the overflow of our hearts, really. How have you been able to, to support and minister to your wife just through all this? One of the wonderful things that our church has afforded me, the elders have come alongside, the entire church has completely galvanized around us. When I gave the very next day, that was a Saturday when we found out the diagnosis, and the very next morning, Sunday, I wasn't scheduled to preach because I was supposed to be in Baltimore. In fact, one of my co-elders, Jim Hines, who's here tonight, sitting on the front row there, he was scheduled to preach. And I sent a text message early in the morning from the hospital. Could I meet with all of you men in my office at the church at 8 o'clock? I have some news for you. And so they all met me there, and I told them what you now know about my wife. And they were of course, all stunned and saddened like, like I was. And what can we do? How can we come alongside you? And brothers, 
for six months, six months from December to, to nearly June on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, somebody from the church was bringing us a meal. I mean, that's, that's a tremendous commitment. What else can we do? The elders said, you stay home. Stay home. Study from home. Be here on Sunday. Preach the Word of God if you can. If not, we'll take care of things. Jim and the other elders just so wonderfully came alongside us and Beth was so wonderfully cared for. I was as well. And the church, I, I, would, I would tell you very honestly, because of the merging together of two different churches, um, there are inherent challenges. And yet, the Lord took something like this, and everything else of little importance became of no importance and everything of how do we come alongside our pastor and his wife was just absolutely wonderful to behold. And they've not stopped. And so the church of Jesus Christ is the safest and greatest place on earth. And we've been so wonderfully ministered to during these days. And I can't thank our church enough, our elders and I can't thank the, the women of the church who come alongside my wife. She was the head of women's ministry. And when she was debilitated, she couldn't come to church for four months just because of her health. And it was, it was so hard on her not to be at church. And so around the fourth month, still not feeling great, but said, I can't stand it anymore. I'm coming to church on Sunday. And maybe once, maybe twice at the most, she hasn't missed church since then. No matter how she feels, no matter the side effects of the chemo, she cannot stand to be away from God's people. Isn't that wonderful? And it shows not only her commitment, but it shows the receptivity of, of the congregation on her, and those one or two times that she was just so sick that she couldn't be there, immediately I was besieged with people. Where is Beth? What's wrong? What can we do? How can we reach out? I mean, that is just so wonderful. And of course, what I'm telling them as a congregation is this is what we need to do for all of us, not just the pastor and his wife. This is what we need to do for all of the brethren, all the brothers and sisters, right? If anybody has a need, when one weeps, we all weep. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. So the church has been so wonderful. And in the process, of course, one year's diagnosis uh, was this past December, just several weeks ago. And Beth spoke to the congregation uh, for the first time publicly uh, up front on the platform just to thank them for their ministry. Uh, if you want to hear that or even see it, if you go to our church's website, Bethany T.O., which stands for Thousand Oaks, BethanyTO.org, uh, you go on the website and there is a little, I think it's a pop-down menu, or it might be on the homepage that says Beth Quinn Updates, and right there on that section is a Facebook Live capturing of her 14-minute thank you 
to the congregation and what she's learning. And she's learning a lot from First uh, Peter. She quoted a passage. She talked about having uh, read during this time of convalescence, uh, once again, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And she shared some stories uh, out of that great allegory of the Christian life. And so if you want to listen to that, I think you'll be very encouraged. Yeah, thank you. You've mentioned just drawing from what you've already, you know, knew about the Lord, faithfulness, uh, the scriptures, the truth, all that. What are what have been some other sources of encouragement that you've had along the way? You mentioned the church, but has there been anything, uh, particular scriptures, uh, music, cards, sermons, emails, texts? How, how has that looked? I'll tell you, my wife uh, is a musician. She's a pianist. And she loves to play the piano. And some of the things she's done when she has been feeling better is to play our piano at home. And uh, that's one of the great joys of me sitting on our couch listening to my wife play the piano. And she's playing the piano to minister also to herself. And she also listens to great great hymns of the faith. In fact, as I was sitting there just before we came up, uh, my phone lit up and I looked down and she was sending yet another video of a great hymn of the faith to all of our children. Hey, listen to this one. And so music has been a wonderful spiritual tonic for her. First Peter 1 has been a great balm to her soul. All the things that First Peter 1 talks about in terms of our faith, uh, she has been so comforted by the Psalms. Um, there's an app on our phones that was actually engineered and developed by a graduate of the Master's Seminary called Five Psalms. Some of you may have that app on your phone, Five Psalms. Psalms, and it's just a very simple app that you can download for free, and when you click onto that app, there are five psalms that come up daily. So if it was the first of the month, you click on the psalm, and you will have five psalms, Psalm 1, and then 31, 61, 91 goes all the way through. And so on the first day of the month, you read those five psalms. You could read a couple in the morning. You could read a couple at night. And the second day, it's Psalm 2. And then you just go through, and they're, they're, they're separated by 30 psalms apiece. And you can do the math. By the time you get to the 30th day, the last psalm you read is Psalm 150. And that has been a wonderful tool. And uh, she often says to me, can you read our five psalms to me now? And so we'll read the psalms. And then when they're especially poignant uh, on a, a particular verse of any one of those psalms that seems greatly applicable to us right in the moment, we, we both stop and we pray that verse, that psalm, right back to the Lord. Just a just a wonderful thing to pray Scripture back to the Lord. You know, I've often said, if you don't know what to pray for, if you've run out of your own language, then use the language of Scripture. Just pray those psalms right back to the Lord. And 
That's been very, very wonderful. Um, I'll tell you what else has been wonderful, and that is great Christian books on suffering, hope, faith. And she, I'm a, I'm a book lover. I'm a bibliophile like you've never seen. I love books, and, and I love Christian books, and I even brought one tonight, The Glory of Grace, An Introduction to the Puritans. It's a new Banner of Truth book because she was reading out of it today. Uh, I get the books in the mail, and then she starts reading them. It's a good deal. And she was reading this book, and so I was saying to her as we were, as I was preparing to come down, what about this book has been encouraging to you? And she read me some sections uh, about faith and about love and about trials and about suffering. And so she's feeding her soul and I get the overflow, and then I can lead her and pray with her. And uh, it, it's been a marvelous thing. Christian music, the Scripture, preaching. Um, she loves to hear great preaching. And uh, she doesn't get much on Sundays with me, so she listens to John MacArthur and, and others. And so she really, really loves the Lord and wants to continue to fill her mind with truth. And she'll hear something, or she'll read something, or she'll hear something sung, and she'll say, listen to this, listen to this, read this, consider this. And I've asked her at times, what is it about these, these tools, these, these helps? They're preparing me for heaven. They're preparing me for not just this life, but the life to come. You know, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, you know, to remain here, as Paul says with you Philippians, that's needful. But to be with Christ is far better. So to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And if you have an eternal perspective that this isn't all that there is in life, that there is a life to come, and if you're preparing for that life, then death is simply the portal through which you go to the glorious, sinless life to come where there's no cancer, there are no tears, no sorrow. And if you, if you connect this life and the life to come and you realize the Bible when it talks about the already, that's what we're doing, in these, these bodies of ours, we're, we're working hard to obey. We're asking for God's grace to honor Him. That's the already, but there's also the not yet. And so as we work and toil and labor, just like 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, she and I talked about that today. Be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it talks about this earthly tent, but it says, so whether we are in this body or we are with the Lord, our aim is to be pleasing to Him. So whether we're, whether we're working as hard as we can in the Christian life here with three steps forward and two steps back, 
and we've got these sins that seem to dog us at, at every step, well, just, just remember that whether you're in this body and you're still doing everything you can to be obedient to Christ, however failing you may be at times, then if your aim is to be pleasing to Him, it's the same aim whether you're in this body or you're directly with the Lord. It's the same aim. So aim for it now and aim for it then, and God will give you the grace when you come to die. There have been a couple of times where she has said to me, this is all a preparation for, for me and every Christian on how to die well, how to die well. We've talked to our congregation very clearly and very honestly and very transparently, and Jim would, would back me on this. We talk very honestly as Christians, and we should, about death, about dying. We should, we should use those terms. We, we should not mask those terms. Now, the Scripture uses a metaphor or a kind of euphemism, sleep, to speak of death, but it also very clearly talks about death, right? So we ought to talk as Christians very transparently about death. And so this is a great opportunity for our little congregation to hear us, especially the preacher and his wife, talk very openly and transparently about the fact that we're all going to die. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. We're all going to die. The question is, are you prepared for death? And certainly, we can have fears about the manner of our death. No one, no one wants to, to go through very, very debilitating, painful ways to die. No one wants to do that. But it's not the manner of your death that's the issue. It's the fact of death itself and that it will come for us all. But if you're in Christ, that's simply a novel experience to go from life to life. Isn't that true for us as believers, brothers? Amen. Thank you very much. Very, very helpful. <clears throat> we had some of the men send in some questions, and they were very curious about just how you've been able to minister to your children through the trial, mm -hmm. and even more specifically, do you explain God's sovereignty and, and total control and, and relative to what Beth is experiencing? One of the greatest blessings of having children who grow up in the church is solid doctrinal preaching. And I'm praising God every day that not just because I'm in vocational full-time ministry, because even if I weren't, I'd still be in the church and I'd still be listening to good preaching wherever we might be and whatever we might be doing. But I thank God for this church. I thank God for the Bible Church of Little Rock. I thank God for our church now, Bethany Church, because in all those locations, the Word of God was faithfully proclaimed. And so my children were well taught. And so, again, now they're drawing on all of the reserves of that which they have been taught about God's sovereignty, uh, about God's love, about grace, mercy. I remember years ago, J.I. Packer uh, wrote a book. It's, it's been retitled. I actually think the title, the current title, is, is better than the, the original title. 
But he wrote a book that's now been retitled, and it's called The 18 Most Important Words You'll Ever Know. And all 18 of those words are doctrinal words, even words like propitiation and sanctification. And I'm thankful to God that this pulpit and the other pulpits that I've had the opportunity to both preach in and sit under have taught words like those so that both young and old could understand solid doctrine based upon not only the definition of such words, but their meaning and their application. And so these these churches that we're a part of, you may have come from grace uh, uh, to grace from another church. You you may have not been here long, or you, you may not be at Grace Church. You may have come in tonight from a, another church. Praise God that this is a congregation who is well-fed every Sunday and who hear solid biblical teaching that they can apply when the storms of life are upon us. And I think that was the, the greatest legacy that we might be able to leave with our children because now they respond to the trial of their mother in ways that are so very encouraging to me as a father. And that doesn't mean, again, that they don't have those rough patches and questions and struggles. We all do. But in the midst of those struggles, the thing that will carry us through are the promises of the Word of God that are given to us to bring us through these trials to their appointed end, which is our ultimate sanctification, our glorification. Yeah, that's good. We all just, you know, we have people in our lives that go through trials. Maybe we haven't experienced them ourselves. Sometimes we're kind of at a loss for what to say. We know a lot of times we get advice, encouragement sometimes that isn't even as well intended as it is. It's maybe not the best. Can you help us maybe think through ways that you've, you guys have been ministered to in a way that hasn't been so helpful, whether it's been this trial, one in the past, just so that we can have some help in thinking through maybe what isn't, isn't as helpful? One thing that I think we all as professing Christians need to be very careful of when we come alongside either loved ones or fellow church members or Christian friends, whether they're here at this church or somewhere else, one thing that comes uppermost to my mind when you ask that question is be careful about giving advice to people, especially those who might have cancer, where you're telling them to either take something or do something or drink something or eat something that you're convinced because someone told you or you've read somewhere in a magazine or you've seen on a television program and you become quite insistent with those people that in order for them to have a long life or to get rid of cancer or to get better or to feel better, that they should do or must do this, that, or the other. Be careful. Be careful about that. Because remember, the only thing that we know with absolute certainty is what God's Word tells us, right? We can bank on that. All other things are opened to much opinion, and so we, we should be careful how we counsel 
especially those who are hurting or sick or diseased. What we should probably do is trust maybe their doctors and others and believe that God in his providence is going to lead them to those helps that might be the most helpful. Now, that doesn't mean that at some point if they ask you for assistance or ask you for help, but even then, I think sometimes Christians with great dogmatism believe that certain vitamins, certain certain foods, certain drugs, whether they're over-the-counter or whatever, must, you must do this. And if you don't do this, you're not caring for yourself or your loved one in the right way or the proper way. Those are, those are really dogmatic statements. So we need to be careful. And we've had a few examples where folks have contacted us or seen us or talked to us and can be very forceful. Don't, don't you want your wife to get well? Don't, don't you want your wife to, to get rid of this cancer? Well, then you must do this, that, or the other. I would just say the best thing that you can do when it's yourself or someone you love or a Christian brother or sister is to come alongside them with your prayers, your biblical encouragements, and your love, and usually through that love, a wonderful hug and an acknowledgement that you're praying for them. And can I do anything for you? Reaching out with practical needs is usually the best medicine that you could possibly give them. So that'd be one thing that I'd say, be, be, be careful with. Um, sometimes those people can go away thinking, well, I'm, I'm confused because they told me one thing and my other Christian friend just told me the exact opposite. Don't eat this, don't drink this. And the other person said, you've got to drink this and you've got to eat this. And they're, they're contradictory to each other and they're conflicting prescriptions and uh, advice. Um, we all want to help, but maybe that's not always the best help. Yeah, that's really helpful. <clears throat> I think it's it's hard too because you just you want to help and you've heard yeah. things and and uh, but yeah, it's it's best to stick to what you know and serving practically, giving biblical advice the way that you know things that the Lord has taught you and encouraged you. And if hey, if there's nothing else, offer prayer. That's right, and encouragement. How has your uh, this view of God been impacted by this trial? Has it been impacted? It's been enlarged. It's been enlivened. It's been a kind of view that in some ways, not always, but in some ways, it's given me a view of God that I don't think I would have been able to have short of this grand trial. And I know my wife Beth would say the same thing. And because that's the case, then again, you're not looking to be sick, you're not looking to be diseased, but you are looking for an enlarged biblical view of God through the trials of life. And for that, you can say, thank you, Lord. Truly, thank you, Lord, for, for putting this huge trial in my life that is causing me to do nothing else 
but completely and totally depend upon you and your care. And who doesn't want a God who puts them in a position to be totally and completely dependent upon him? Now, someone says, well, I think I could get that some other way, so let's figure that out. Well, yes, of course. We're not masochists, you know, we're not sadists. We don't say, hey, I want to inflict this, or hey, I want this inflicted on me. But we do say this, Lord, I want whatever you want in your will and purpose to conform me to the image of your son, Romans eight twenty eight and 29, and he will work all of these things together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? Verse 29 tells us the very purpose of these trials, all of these things that are happening for my good is to conform me to the image of his son. And so if God brings a physical trial, um, a financial trial, a relational trial, uh, a social trial, whatever it may be, we're actually seeing the answers to our prayers. God, enlarge my view. Show me the big God that you are. I want to know you, like Paul says, the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings. If you pray those prayers, brothers, it's coming. It's going to come. And when it comes, don't reject it because it's the very answer to your prayers. And because of that, you can thank him even in the midst of the trial because it's going to enlarge your view and you're going to see God in ways you never thought possible. Yeah, as you, as you say that, you know, you, you, it makes me think of just us running into God's wisdom because you know, we pray, we ask for humility, we ask for godliness, we ask for a greater love for our wives, a greater prayer life, whatever it may be, and God brings those things through means oftentimes that we don't expect. And it doesn't mean like Jesus, we don't pray, take this cup from me. Uh, but also, too, we have that heart. It says, your will be done. Yes. Not my will, but your will. That's right. What would, you, what would you say, though, to people who really are in the midst of a trial and just are struggling with trusting God, his wisdom, his sovereignty, and, and probably most of all, just the fact that, they lo- that he loves them, cares about them? What would you say to, to them? One of the first things that comes to my mind as soon as that question is asked is there are a plethora of examples in Scripture about those who struggled, right? So reading Scripture biographically is really important. What do I mean by that? Look at Job. Look at Peter. Read David's Psalms. I mean, he's asking, David does in the Psalms, all kinds of vexing questions, right? God, why are you doing this? And why are you letting these people overtake me or your people? Why are you doing this? And because those questions are in our Bibles, in those Psalms, which are inspired by the Holy Spirit, it must mean that they were acceptable as questions to be asked. They're inscripturated in the Word. And because they're asked, they are transparent questions that a 
brother, David, is asking sincerely and is expecting an answer from the Lord. So that's very natural. So look at these, look at these biographies. I mean, even if the questions are illegitimate, you know, there was a time where Job began to actually question the Lord's work in his life in bringing him all these trials. And you know, the latter part of Job is God answering him out of the whirlwind and says, who were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you? Why are you contending with the Almighty? Well, that's also at times a person's experience who's going through such a severe trial, and they're now even indicting God for what he's doing and bringing such a trial in their life. Sometimes Christians do that too. And when they do, we'll need to be spiritually spanked. And God will discipline us according to Hebrews 12. And when he does, he'll, he'll spank us like a loving father, like a loving earthly father does. And that's the analogy he gives in Hebrews 12. And then after a time, we understand through that discipline, that's not a good question to ask our Heavenly Father. That's out of bounds. But there are also those questions that are asked where, Lord, I'm not questioning your character, I'm not questioning your goodness, but I am asking you, when do you think this trial could be over for me? When, when will my faith be strengthened so that I can go on to the next trial? How long, O oh Lord? And so read these passages through the lens of your own experience and ask God to allow these real persons in the Bible to allow you to understand their experiences as though you were looking in a mirror. And I've just given a few examples, but those are some of the things that I think the Lord could really help all of us with, myself included. And I'll tell you, brothers, when, when I decided through our Sunday evening services to pick a Bible book to go through, long before I knew about my wife's situation, I decided that I wanted to preach the Psalms all the way through. And I would try to do it in a, in a creative way that wouldn't mean I was preaching through the Psalms for the next, you know, 34 years. So I decided to do one sermon per Psalm, if I could, until I get to Psalm 119, of course. And so I, I have begun to do that, and right in the midst of my, my own grappling with and working with these psalms and reading them and meditating upon them and trying to understand them and trying to teach them, we get a diagnosis. My dear wife has stage four terminal cancer. These psalms have been my lifeline. They, they've been the, the buoy that's kept me from drowning. And so far, I preached through the first 52 psalms. And so I'm a third of the way there. Psalm 53 is next in a couple of weeks. And I just want to preach these psalms because they're ministering to my own soul. And oh, by the way, there's a congregation out there that's listening too. 
this is, this is really for me. These psalms are for me because I have to preach them by studying them once and then preaching them again, so I'm being convicted doubly because I'm studying them and then I'm preaching them, and they have been fabulous spiritual guides, especially David, because I'm in that first section where there's so many Davidic psalms. I mean, I just, I preached through Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, those penitential psalms where David's needing to repent. Well, I need to repent of my attitudes and my choices, and we all do. So use some of these persons in your life, these biographical figures, and and put yourself in their place, and I, I think your spiritual life will be grander for it. Yeah, thanks. You mentioned Hebrews 12. I have a couple of, or a few theological questions. Uh, when we see uh, in Scripture that you know, we see in Scripture that ailments are not necessarily because of sin, you know, like the blind man whom Jesus healed. Uh, but it could be a temptation to think that when bad things happen, that God is disciplining us. How do you think through God's discipline? You know, from Hebrews 12, uh, when God allows such difficult circumstances in our lives, could we, could you know, what we experience in some form be God's discipline? It certainly could be God's form of discipline where he's, he's disciplining us because we have sinned against him, and in some cases egregiously so. But remember this, Hebrews 12 is talking about the kind of discipline that a heavenly father gives to us. Now, the grand and glorious reality of that is those to whom the Father loves, Hebrews 12 says, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. This is not the kind of discipline or judgment or punishment that God gives to unbelievers. That's not the context of Hebrews 12. Now, it is true that Hebrews 12 says that if you're not receiving discipline, then that very well proves that you're an illegitimate son and not a true child of the faith. But if you are legitimate, if you're genuine, if you're a bona fide, blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, then know this, all of us will not escape the loving chastisement of the Lord. And, and you, if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. This loving chastisement of the Lord. And it comes and goes at times that seem remarkably consistent with the ups and downs of the Christian life, right? And so because of that, welcome the discipline of the Lord, because as he reproves us and chastises us as a heavenly father, it's so we might see the fruit of repentance. That's why the end of Hebrews 12, that section there, says that for the moment, no discipline seems, what? You remember it? Joyful. But afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I think that discipline is one of the greatest friends and allies of the Christian life because it prods us, pokes us, pushes us into obedience. 
And that's why David says sometimes in the Psalms, he doesn't say it this way, but this is my paraphrase. Lord, when I'm not obedient, make me obedient. Force the issue. I want to grow. And in many ways, sometimes that loving discipline of the Lord is the tool by which he uses the kind of discipline that we need and that we might not otherwise grow without. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I have a two and a half year old. And so <laughs> <laughs> uh, she doesn't enjoy the discipline, but uh, you know, you, you understand right. that you love her and you That's have right. to. So another just kind of theological question. We often hear the word cope in relation to difficult circumstances. Uh, is that a biblical idea? Why or why not? I tend not only not to use that word, but the concepts and definitions behind it. I understand when people use it. I understand sometimes when you're going through the vice grip of of trial and testing that someone might say, I'm just hanging on or I'm just trying to cope. But I don't like it for another reason, not just because it's an English word with a somewhat sketchy definition. I don't like it because I don't see it in Romans 8. Here's what I see in Romans 8. I see in Romans 8 the Apostle Paul saying that you and I are more than conquerors in Christ. So rather than saying, let's do our best to cope, whether it's through a trial or just generally coping along in the Christian life, Paul says about us that if we're in Christ, we're super conquerors through him who loves us. So I would tend to say, try to use the kind of language both for yourself and for those that you counsel, disciple, your family, your children, uh, another brother that you may be discipling or who's discipling you. Try to use as much as you can the kinds of biblical words that are translated in your English Bible so that your discipler, or if you're a disciple of someone, that when you're reading your Bible, you're finding the very words that are being used for and toward you. So that when you're reading it, you're saying, I remember that word. I remember that concept. I remember that principle. If you tend to use words that the world uses, and then you go to your Bible, and you don't see those words translated from the Hebrew or Greek text into English, then there's a little bit of dissonance or a disconnect. Try to use biblical words as much as you possibly can. And and what would be some of those words related to the subject that we're talking about tonight? Endurance, patience. Read Romans 5. Read 1 Peter 1. Read James 1 about trials. And when you begin to use because of your reading of the Scripture, biblical language, then you start talking in such language to each other. And that's a lot easier, and it's a lot better, in my judgment, than using words that the world uses. And I tend to think that the world uses the word cope, and I tend to think they use it in ways that are both overused and misunderstood and often ill-defined. 
Well, too, I think you hit it, you know, the nail on the head is when you use non-biblical words, oftentimes there's non-biblical solutions too that come along with those. And so that's right. positive thinking, that's right. um, ice cream, you know, whatever it could be, you know, I mean, <laughs> you're coping, you're yes. coping with it. Yes. It, it's not that you're going to the word of God. It's not that you're thinking through the character of God, asking the questions that you were mentioning a moment ago. Yes. It's you're just, it's, it seems like the way that I've heard it used in society is more so how can I, uh, help myself think positively, feel good about this moment so that I can just get past it. Right. It, it really has nothing to do with the biblical response that you've been talking about, learning, right. growing, trusting God, praising the Lord. Yes. And um, so, yeah, really, really helpful. Thank you. Um, the last theology question is, we sometimes get the impression that Christians really should be happy, giddy type of, of people. You know, we see uh, passages in the Bible. You mentioned James 1 a moment ago, consider it all joy. Uh, other, other ones that say, Romans 5, you mentioned that, rejoice in the Lord always. Um, that's a different one. Yeah, I was thinking Romans 4. 4. Yeah, exalt, yeah. exalt, yes. you know, in tribulations is, yes. is the Romans 5 one. Yes. And um, so it could lead us to believe, you know, believe this, that Christians should be happy, giddy about these type of things. How should a Christian think through joy and rejoicing as it relates to suffering in this life? I don't want to split definitions too finely because obviously some people use as synonyms the word happy and the word joy. But I think there is probably a biblical difference between the concepts of happiness and joy. It could be, again, not trying to slice it too finely, it could be that the concept of being happy is more related to your circumstances so that at one moment when your circumstances are good and up and encouraging and right and best, you're happy. When you're not happy, the circumstances are down and gloomy and dark. I think that's generally how people understand the word happy. I would tend to say, be careful. You should probably use again these biblical words and Often, the concept of real happiness, as translated in the Scripture, is the word joy. Joyous, joy, rejoicing, exaltation, not exaltation, A-L, but U-L. It's exaltation. That's another word for rejoice. So, if you can work on both understanding Scripture and its various contexts, including the rejoice passages, and begin to use that, that kind of terminology in your everyday speech, it'll help you and help those around you when they're confused not only about terminology, but about life itself. And you can say, let me tell you the difference between I think what the world might say is happiness and what the Bible says about rejoicing. And then you can, you can work those definitions off of each other. Now, like I said, I think there can be joy in happiness, but make sure that in that joy, you're talking about biblical realities and not just, I'm really happy because everything's going my way and my circumstances are good. That's where I think you can really add rich meat 
and good, solid teaching by using those biblical words. And joy is, is one of the greatest. Here's another, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. The Apostle Paul mentions thanksgiving so much that he's been called by many commentators as the apostle of thanksgiving. And if there was ever a guy who had the opportunity to question the Lord's plan and purpose, I'm imprisoned, I'm, I'm being beaten, I've got rods down my back, I, I'm being flogged, uh, right? I've, I've been left for dead, I've been shipwrecked. You know what Second Corinthians says about Paul and all of his experiences? And yet, he was one of the most thankful and joyous persons on the pages of the New Testament. So I don't think he would have said something like, I'm really, really happy versus I'm very joyful. I, I have joy in the Lord, and I'm so grateful and thankful for what he's doing in my life. Those kinds of words, because most of our English translations will translate these uh, original terms with those those kinds of English words, and I think those are probably better to use, even though we understand what generally what people mean when they talk about happiness and such. Yeah, that's great. So we have about seven minutes, so I think seven we're doing minutes. pretty okay. good on time. I had to skip a couple of questions. Great. But uh, that's, it's better to, to have more questions than to run out of them. That's right. We have two kind of final questions. One of them is going to just focus on helping people think through trials they may be in, but also, to helping people think through how to minister to those going through trials that may be around them. So the first one is just I think it's a general temptation that when we're in a trial, the desire is to escape from it, Hmm. to move from the trial, the difficulty of it, to to something that's easier. What would you say to those, to say to those, uh, to someone who may be in an intense trial that's considering sin, or some other escape, uh, what encouragement do say might you give to them? For someone who's considering sin as, as an escape hatch um, from the trial, I, I would point them to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And I would also tell them this, it's never right to do wrong in order to be right. It's never right to do wrong in order to be right. If you're looking for the right path, doing the wrong thing won't get you there. Now, someone could say, well, you know, I, I, I think I was hit with that as my only choice. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says the opposite. It says, no temptation, no testing has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That means you and I, as part of the human race, will never have a trial that someone can legitimately say this, no one's ever gone through this particular one, only me. No, it's common to man, every one of these subjects or categories of trials, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, provide a way of escape, provide the way out of a sinful response so as to escape, so that you may be able to endure it. And the word endure there means to bear up underneath, right? So if that's the case... Nobody can say, legitimately so, that my only option was to sin as a result of this trial that was brought in my life. That's simply not biblical. So what do, what do we do? How do you help someone? Well, we, we first try to help each other by enumerating, well, what 
sins am I to avoid? Both attitudinal and action. And Paul often in his epistles, just to use him, him as an example, he's often, especially in the practical sections, right off of the, of the doctrinal sections, where he's giving these hideous list of sins, right? Almost every place that he pins a letter, he's actually talking about real terrible sins. Those are great lists to say, well, I don't want to do that. Well, what does that mean? What does that word actually mean? And how, how do I avoid that particular sin? And the doctrinal sections and other portions of Scripture will give us antidotes away from those kinds of sins and that kind of sinning. And when they do, we have to say to ourselves and those we're trying to help, this is the path. The path is away from a sinful response so that I may bear up underneath the trial. And when you're bearing up underneath the trial, guess what? God never gives you a trial that he does not also give you the grace to bear. He'll never give you a trial or a test because those trials and tests are defined and developed by him so that you may be able to endure it, bear up underneath it, But you know and I know that in our own strength, we don't seem to have the capacity, the power to do it, but when he gives us the grace to endure it, then we can bear up rightly and patiently and enduringly underneath the trial so that his grace is sufficient for us. Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12? I asked the Lord three times to take this thorn from the flesh away from me, right? This messenger of Satan. And the Lord three times said no. And Paul's conclusion was his grace is sufficient for his power is perfected in my weakness. So Paul had his trials. He had his difficulties. And they weren't just ministry difficulties. Well, I went over here and preached and they didn't like it. And so they flogged me. And then I went over here and I preached the gospel over here. And Paul also was a sinner and he had sins that he was grappling with. You remember when he, when he sort of uh, castigated the, uh, the, the great high priest, remember that? And, and he said, you, you whitewashed wall. And then somebody told him, that's the high priest. You're not to do that. And he said, I wasn't aware that he was the the high priest, but he, but he lashed out with some some anger. I mean, Paul was a sinner like us, and he needed grace. And so his answer was, his grace is sufficient for me, for his power is perfected in my weakness. That'd be a great passage, 2 Corinthians 12, and what Paul was grappling with for you to go over, not only in your, your own quiet time, but, but to help other brothers, you know, what trials the Lord taking you through, and what kind of grace do you think He's giving you right now to to pass the test. And well, I don't. I'm I'm not passing the test. Well, let's let's pray and ask God for the grace to endure, so that we're not sort of backed up against the wall, saying, "Well, my my only option here is to is to sin. I I can't do anything else." But well, First Corinthians ten thirteen says that's not true. So the promise from God's word is that He'll give me the grace to endure, and He'll also allow me to thrive and be more conformed to Christ's image through the trial.
Yeah, and you've mentioned 1 Corinthians 10, 13 a couple different times. And the verse you quoted earlier, and one of my favorite parts of it, as you speak about just the grace to endure, is it says, but God is faithful. Yes. And that really speaks to his active involvement. Yes. Each individual trial, temptation, uh, pressure that comes on our life. Yes. He's actually involved in all of those governing them. Yes. And so just really an amazing truth uh, to think through. In that One of the things that my wife told me recently was she reminded me of the Charles Haddon Spurgeon quote, when you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. When you can't trace God's hand, when you can't see how he's working in the trial, trust his heart because he loves us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He loves us by giving up his own son in violent sacrificial death so that you and I could be loved with a cross. And because of that, and because of that great love with which he loved us, he's not going to stop at just our justification the point of our salvation when it began, he's not going to stop there. He's going to continue on throughout the rest of my Christian life, my sanctification, my progressive holiness, because his plan is to produce not just someone who's saved without holiness, but someone who's saved with holiness, and he will not stop. He's on a relentless quest to make you and I holy, and because of that, Philippians 1.6 is a promise from God. And what does Philippians 1.6 say? Somebody quote it for me. That's right. He who began a good work in you will perfect it, perform it, complete it until or in the day of, depending on your translation, the day of Jesus Christ. What a promise. What a promise from God's Word. He who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ. What's the day of Christ? Either the day of Christ's coming to us or the day I go to him. And because of that, you and I don't have to sin as the only possible response to a trial. And we know that's the case in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, because brothers, if you read, and I encourage you, go home tonight and read not just 1 Corinthians 10, 13, but read the first 12 verses of the chapter, 10, 1 through 12. And remember that verse 12 says, take heed lest you fall. And then verse 13 that I've been quoting several times. And verses 1 to 11 is an enumeration of several sins of the Israelites from the Old Testament that are given to us as examples not to emulate, not to follow. And that's another list of sins that you and I can be prone to falling into, sometimes quite unawares, you know, like Galatians 6 says we've fallen in a, in a trap. Sometimes we go headlong into it and we know exactly what we're doing and we're sinning by great choice. Whichever the category you're in at any one moment, 1 Corinthians 10 says, don't follow them. Take heed lest you fall. 
Don't let your pride get in the way of you thinking you can't possibly fall in any of those ways. But if you do, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able. But with such a temptation or testing, he'll provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Yeah, amen. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for coming. We uh, just greatly appreciate you and just sharing with us and just kind of opportunity to hear how you have have walked through this and God has brought you through it. And uh, just praise the Lord for even the ending, just bringing it back to the cross and and just reminding us of of the love of God, the cross. If we ever Mm. have a moment in our life where Mm. we forget or are challenged to believe Mm. that God loves us deeply, the cross is is really Mm. the the reminder Mm. and uh, that brings us back to that. Thank you very, very much. Let me pray for you and and, uh, your family. Father, we just are, are just, again, awed, Lord, by your faithfulness. Your goodness, as um, Lance has mentioned, God, just the answers to prayer, the uh, continued support of his church, the love, the uh, just ministry, the way that this has drawn his family together, the way, Lord God, that your truth has ministered to them in this trial, God, that has been stored up in their hearts for years and years, and just really your faithfulness to them. And even in this, this very trial, God, your continued faithfulness to them. We do pray, Lord God, just practically, physically for Beth, that you would continue to allow her treatments, God, to be successful. Lord God, though we trust you, we pray, God, for and ask, God, for this to end. We, we do trust and give you glory, Lord, for all of it, that we would, of course, accept good from you, but also evil, Lord God, in your wisdom and goodness. Continue to expand, Lord God, whatever you decide, uh, the Quinn's just understanding of your goodness and your love. Help them to be more impactful in ministry. God, continue to use uh, this trial, God, to encourage and to help others. We pray, Lord, that you would cause it to end soon, Lord, if that be your will. And certainly, Lord God, the, all the treatments, the, the surgery coming up soon would be effective. You give wisdom to the doctors and help them, God. And even the decisions, Lord God, that may be coming, that I know that there's been complicated decisions with medication and other treatments in the past. You continue to give them wisdom with that. And, uh, Lord, that you continue to just allow them to persevere, to trust you, and to continue, Lord, to give you glory in all of it. We thank you uh, for him, for his wife, his family, and their testimony this evening uh, by your grace and goodness to them. In Jesus' name, amen.